good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Let's turn together in the Word tonight once more to uh, Nehemiah and the chapter 9. I want to read the last verse of chapter 9 and then we will uh, read down into chapter 10. So Nehemiah 9 and the verse number 38 it says, And because of all this we make a sure covenant and write it and our princes, Levites and priests seal unto it. And then what follows is the list of the names who are involved in the sealing of the covenant. And then let's go down to the verse number 28 of chapter 10. And the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the porters, the singers, the Nethanims, and all they that had separated themselves from the people of the lands unto the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone having knowledge and having understanding, they cleave to their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law, which is given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his judgments and his statutes. And that we would not give our daughters unto the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. And if the people of the land bring ware or any victuals on the Sabbath day to sell, and that we would not buy it of them on the Sabbath, or on the holy day, and that we would leave the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Also, we made ordinances for us to charge ourselves yearly with the third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread and for the continual meat offering and for the continual burnt offering of the Sabbaths of the new moons, for the set feasts and for the holy things and for the sin offerings to make an atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. And then down to the verse number uh, 38. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites take tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes unto the house of our God, to the chambers into the treasure house. For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the corn, of the new wine and the oil, unto the chambers where are the vessels of the sanctuary, and the priests that minister, and the porters and the singers. And we will not forsake the house of our God. We have been noting that at this time in the history of God's people, under the leadership of Nehemiah, God has been pleased to pour out a breath of revival upon their experience. We've noted the signs of that awakening. There is a, a, a burden for the word of God. There is a deep-seated sorrow for sin. And there is a resolve to seek God's face in prayer. But when God searches the hearts of his people, a sign of that work of grace will be a renewed commitment to give ourselves to God, to the Lord in his service. And so you read in verse number 38 of chapter 9, And because of all this we make a sure covenant in light of God's blessing, in light of them being reproved by the law of God, they then resolve, they commit themselves to serve God afresh. 
The wording of verse number 38 is in itself interesting. It says there, And because of all this we make a sure covenant. Now you will see that the word covenant there is in italic font. Remind you once more that in our authorized version, when you see uh, italic font, it is because the translators have supplied that word. The word itself is not found in the original. And yet, in this case, the translators have, I believe, very correctly and very helpfully supplied this term. Because what you see in this, this particular event, and in the dealings of the end of chapter 9 into chapter 10, you see the people of God clearly renewing their covenantal commitment to God. And the words that are used here have all the features of the words of biblical covenant. And you'll see there in verse number 38, the word make is used. And because of all this, we make. And that word literally is the word to cut. So literally, if you wanted to give a very wooden translation of the verse, you could say, and because of all this, we cut a sure thing. And we'll see the word cut more in a moment or two. And it is used almost universally for the making of a covenant in the Old Testament. So you've got the word cut you clearly have the sense that this obligation was more than a passing resolve. It was a binding obligation. Look at the words again. They were to write it and they sealed it. This was a commitment out of which they could not wriggle out. It was written, it was sealed. It has this binding nature of a legal document. Again, you can think of your, uh, perhaps your last will and testament, and in the old-fashioned terms, that could have been rolled up, wax would have been applied to the, to the scroll, uh, sealed with a seal, indicating it was a binding, a binding covenantal agreement. So you have that here, it's written and it is sealed. Another feature of the covenants in Scripture is the use of an oath. And you'll see over in chapter 10, verse number 29, uh, there is the, the recognition of this. They enter into a curse and into an oath. Again, that reference to curse, of course, goes back to the writings of Moses in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Curses upon those who would not obey God and blessings upon those who obey God. But here again, you see the use of the oath. Again, another indication that this is a covenantal agreement sealed by the representatives, civil and religious. The list of the people involved in chapter 10, they comprise both those of the civil and the religious authority. But it is in turn participated in by all the people. Verse 28, and the rest of the people. So the previous verses, you have got the religious, you have the civil authorities, and then you have all the people in verse number 28. They all commit themselves to this solemn oath-bound agreement. The covenant itself that they make has a commitment that is very clear. Verse number 29. Their commitment is to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord or Lord. There's a commitment here to a path of wholehearted obedience. It's what happens. When God comes in revival, the people have a burden for the word. But that burden to hear the word is then translated in a commitment to obey the word. That ought to be our response, having heard the word of God. 
We ought to get ourselves before the Lord and commit ourselves to renewed obedience to his word. The psalmist in Psalm 119 would think upon his ways and turn his feet unto God's testimonies. He makes haste and delays not to keep thy commandments. Are you a child of God? Are you saved? Do you sit under the word? Well, for those who are saved by God's grace, they are those who in turn will serve God by grace. There is. There is an obligation upon God's people to regularly reflect and renew their resolve to obey God. And I do encourage you, I encourage you from time to time, take some special time, time aside, a prolonged season before God and before the word and determine in your soul to resolve to obey God's word. It may be in a particular area. It may be in an area in which you feel you're feeling and you want to come aside, you want to pray and meet with God and you want to resolve to do God's will. That's a good practice. Now in this renewed covenant of commitment made by the people that there are features that are distinct to the civil community of God's people in the old covenant. There are particular details that do not apply directly to our situation here. But there are some wonderful principles and lessons that we can all learn regarding our commitment to live for God. And the first thing I want you to appreciate and note tonight is that sacrifice is the ground of this covenant. I've said to you already, it is termed the cutting of a covenant. Now that may not mean a lot to us, but the language would be very significant to the Jewish reader. Verse 13 of chapter 9, and because of all this we make or we cut a sure covenant. It was made with the cutting of sacrifice. A covenant in its definition is a bond, an oath-bound bond sealed in blood. And that idea, of course, it covers God's covenants with man as well as man's with God. You think of God's covenant of promises and how they are secured by blood. God's promises to us are of grace and blessing. But that grace and blessing comes to sinners uh, on the ground of blood shed for their sins to be pardoned. For God to bestow grace upon a sinner necessitates the shedding of blood. You turn back to Genesis 15 uh, very briefly and you'll see uh, again in one of the very first biblical covenants there is this uh, reference to the cutting of the covenant. It's Genesis 15 and the verse number 18. In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. That word made is the same word used in in Nehemiah chapter 9. It is the word to cut. And you go back to uh, Genesis 15, the verse number 9, and God gives instructions to Abraham, uh, these instructions that are to confirm to Abraham that the promises God's make will, God makes will come to pass. He's taken heifer, a she-goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And then in verse 10, And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not. God, the fire and the lamp, Passing between those pieces, indicating that God was making or cutting a covenant, a covenant sealed with blood. 
And that language, of course, that then uh, translates all the way forward into the book of Hebrews, where we read of Christ as the surety, the mediator of a new, a better covenant. His blood as the blood of the great shepherd, the blood of the everlasting covenant. And so you see that God's covenants, that they come to us upon the ground of blood. They're secured by blood. But our own commitment and our own covenant to serve God itself arises out of that blood sacrifice on Calvary. Our promises, our covenant, or commitment to God is unto obedience. So on God's hand, uh, there is the promise of blessing and grace. In our response, there is the promise, the covenantal uh, obligation to obey the word of God. Turn to Jeremiah 34, please. And here you'll see, uh, just a, this an interesting text that gives us the, the details re- regarding the nature of a covenant. Jeremiah 34, in the verse number 18. And I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant which have not performed the words of the covenant which they had made before me when they cut the calf in twain and passed between the parts thereof. You see how familiar this this language is now? There's a a covenant cut. There's animals divided. There's a passing between the animals. And the implication being there, if the party who passes between breaks the covenant, then what happens to the animals should happen to them. It is bringing upon themselves the oath-bound promise to fulfill the covenant. And that covenant here in verse number 18 is to perform the words of the covenant which they have made before me. Transgressing my covenant. These are all terms that indicate obedience to God's word. We, as God's people, we respond. We respond to the covenant of grace with a determination, an oath-bound determination To do the will of God. This determination is motivated by blood. You think also of how uh, this sacrifice is accepted. We're we're bought with a price. We are not our own. Therefore we are to glorify God in our bodies and our souls which are God's. I want to just set this out to you again this evening. We're going to see very shortly some of the, the nature of this covenant. The nature of what true obedience involves. But if we do not rightly grasp the glories of God's covenantal dealings through blood, then we will not be motivated properly to obey. There may be a false motivation. Our motivation must always be gospel. We must always seek to serve God out of the gospel, not into the gospel. And out of the assurance of God's purchasing us by blood, we then determine to obey God and do the will of God. And praise God, our offerings to God are accepted because of Christ's blood. And so we see here again that if we are to resolve in covenant, it must be on the ground of blood. Blood sacrifice, the blood of the everlasting covenant. But if sacrifice is the ground of this covenant, separation is the prerequisite of this covenant. For this covenant to be kept, there was the need for people to separate themselves. Look at verse number 28. And the rest of the people 
the priests, the Levites, the porters, the singers, the Nethanims, and all they that had separated themselves from the people of the lands unto the law of God. Again, our tendency as a denomination is often to think about ecclesiastical separation. We are separating ourselves from false apostate religion. But there's so much more to separation than the ecclesiastical separation. Here, it is not simply dealing with separating ourselves from false religion, but from the sins of the people. It's a separation out of sin unto God. I, I, I like the way it's put in verse number 28. It's a separating of themselves unto the law of God. We read the famous verse in separation, Hebrews chapter 13. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. We go out and we go to Christ. There is a determination in separation not only to leave off sin, but to get to Christ and to obedience. And separation is really just another word for sanctification. It means to set apart ourselves for holy use. To determine to be set apart from sin for God's purpose. It is, of course, Christ's purpose for his people. Sanctify them through thy truth. We are sanctified through our conversion. We are those who have been set apart by God unto a holy use. That's sanctification that starts a conversion and continues through your Christian life. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. See, separation is not an optional extra for the Christian. But is actually involved in the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. Obedience to God arises out of a determination to be separate from sin. And separate unto God. Now some might read this. And they may read verse 28. And say well such a doctrine of separation. Surely must be a hindrance to evangelism. How can you be so separate from the lands. The people of the lands. And still reach the people of the lands. Well separation. Is separation from the practices of the world without being isolated from the people of the world. Some people take separation and apply it in a term of isolation. To be separate is to be isolated from the sins of this world and from the people of this world. For others, evangelism must involve infiltration. It must involve an identification with the sinners of this world. Both of these extremes are er erroneous. Separation does not mean isolation, and evangelism does not mean infiltration. The separation of the Jews uh, from the people was ultimately for the good of the people. When God's people take separation seriously, then they manifest to the people around them the true nature of God, the character of God in His holiness, and God's character is rightly reflected in a separate people. So our church... We must maintain our distinct identity for the good of people around us. The notion that we will win the world if we are more like the world is not biblical. It is when we are in the world, but not like the world, that we will then win the world. And thus the doctrine of separation 
is a separation from the sins of the world without separating ourselves from the sinners in the world. An unholy people is an offense to the Lord and a hindrance to evangelism. Separation reveals the law. When God's people are separate from the sins of the world, then the world see their sin and they see their need of the Savior. We must not be conformed to the world's selfishness. Self is the God of this nation. We must not be conformed to this world's secularism. That is the nature of true covenantal commitment to obey the word of God. And so having thought about the sacrifice as the ground of this commitment and then the necessity of separation, you then see some specific areas. And there are three areas that are included in the verses that remain in this chapter. In every era of church history, these are the areas of common neglect. These are the areas that when addressed and obeyed will often result in much blessing for the people of God. When we resolve to obey God's word, there will be a desire to maintain God-centered homes. Verse 30. Part of their resolve is that we would not give our daughters unto the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. What's that about? It's a recognition that intermarriage leads to religious compromise. Remember Jezebel's effect on Ahab? How that the ungodly in the context of the people of God brings about much ruination for the work of God and the testimony of God in the world. God's purpose as the people will renew this covenant is the maintenance of unified homes where generations to come are taught the things of God. When a minister in our denomination is asked to conduct a marriage, the first thing in their minds will be, is this an equal yoke? Is the husband-to-be and the wife-to-be, are they both the children of God? And if that yoke is not equal, then we will not conduct that marriage. Because there's a recognition that that, that is to the ruination of generations to come. I remind you who are here as parents that you make sure that you take a tremendously central role in the courtship of your children. And so there is, within the revived people of God, there is a desire to maintain God-centered homes, not just now, but for the generations to come. There is also, in the second place, a desire to maintain the Sabbath day. Verse number 31 and if the people of the land bring ware or any victuals on the Sabbath day to sell, that we would not buy it of them on the Sabbath. The issue of Sabbath observance is so misunderstood today that to read a verse like that will seem somewhat strange. What is, what is the proper observance of the Lord's day? Well, it is to be conducted in works of public and private worship. 
It is a day for God. Isaiah 58 makes it clear. It is a day that is to be a delight. To delight ourselves in the Lord. And to turn away from our own words, our own pleasures, our own works. And there are those who will have to work. Works of mercy, piety or necessity. But others will exempt themselves from work so that they can worship. But also on that day, there is in the word of God clear principles regarding the prohibition of trade so that we would not be consumed with the affairs of this world. We would not be worried about the green things in our wallet, but rather that would be set apart for that day. And our burden would be to be in the presence of God. There is biblical reason whereby God's people did object in the old days to stores opening on the Lord's day. That was not old-fashioned fundamentalism. That was old-fashioned Christianity. And there was a standing against the trading on the Lord's day. And when God comes and revives an area and a region, I guarantee you there will be a renewed determination to maintain the Sabbath day. There's also, lastly, the maintaining of the needs of the house of God. There is, in the verses that follow, verses 32 through to the end of the chapter, there is a commitment to ensure that there is provision for the Lord's work. Some of these requirements are unique to the Levitical ceremonies, which have been fulfilled by Christ. But the principle of giving for the work of God continues. Again, when there is declension, there will be a holding back of supporting the work of missions and supporting the work of God. But when we know God's blessing in our own personal lives, we will gladly and freely give for the progress of the gospel. It's always the case. Why? Because when God's people are on fire for Christ, they have a desire that others will also know much about Christ. In the language of verse number 39, we will not forsake the house of our gods. So we have noticed in these few chapters, chapters 8, 9, and 10 of Nehemiah, we've noticed what God does when he comes and revives his people. There's a hunger for the word. There's a sorrow over sin. There's a burden for the place of prayer. And there's a renewed commitment to obey God and not simply in generalities but in concrete, specific ways. So challenge you, I challenge you tonight. Will you pray for God to come revive us again? And you'll pray much for God by His Spirit to revive His work for His name's sake. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified.